friend of mine, uh, Ron Dunn, who's now in heaven, uh, preached a lot with Joel Gregory. And Ron once said to me, I wish Joel Gregory would just preach one bad sermon. Uh, when it comes to preaching, uh, I don't suffer fools gladly. Not many preachers that I want to hear. Uh, and there are not many in the world that you could call world class. Uh, but what we're going to hear today is a preacher's preacher. Joel Gregory uh, would not need an introduction in America, but he does over here because you've never heard of him. He's a Texan, born in Fort Worth, Texas, uh, has preached in the leading churches in America. He was pastor of Travis Avenue Baptist Church in Fort Worth. He was pastor of First Baptist Church, Dallas, and now he is professor of preaching. Uh, at He holds the George Truett uh, Chair of Professor of Preaching at Baylor University. Uh, it just happens that he is in Oxford uh, in a sub on a sabbatical. He and his wife have been living in Oxford for the last uh, several weeks and just has a month or two more. And I heard that he was here. Joel and I have been friends for 20, 25 years. I had him at Westminster Chapel, and I said to Colin, if you can get this man, do it. So we've got him. And you will see that what I have said implied is true. You've got to be careful uh, when you put it on too thick. It puts the preacher under a lot of pressure. But I hope you'll enjoy him, that we will leave here today knowing that Jesus is alive. Welcome, Dr. Joel Gregory. Thank you. you need to repent. Thank you. Thank you very much, Kendall, to Pastor Colin Dyer, to my friend R.T. Kendall. I've prayed for him for decades that he'll be delivered from exaggeration. <laughs> we need to have a deliverance service for his exaggeration. It is an honor to be able to be here at Kensington Temple today, really an astonishment and I'm grateful to Pastor Colin Dye and R.T. Kendall for inviting me to be here on this Easter Sunday. And to that end, I want to call your attention to the subject, the incognito Christ. Would you open the New Testament to me, to the Gospel of Luke? We're going to be in the 24th chapter, the last chapter of Luke. It's evening of Easter, the first Easter. Two disciples are on a road. One of them's named Cleopas, the other one doesn't even get a name, and we don't know who Cleopas was. And in the 24th chapter of Luke, in the 13th verse, the risen Jesus makes his first appearance in Luke's gospel on a road with two anonymous disciples. Let's join the story in Luke 24, 13. Now, behold, two of them are traveling that same day to a village called 
Emmaus, which was seven miles from Jerusalem. And they talked together of all these things which had happened. So it was while they conversed and reasoned that Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were restrained, so they did not know him. And he said to them, what kind of conversation is this that you have with one another as you walk and are sad? And then the one whose name was Cleopas answered and said to him, are you the only stranger in Jerusalem and have not known the things which happened there? In these days, he said to them, what things? They said to him, the things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet mighty in deed and word before God and all our people, and how the chief priest and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, beside this today, the third day since these things happened, yes, and certain women of our company who arrived at the tomb early astonished us. When they did not find his body, they, they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels in July. And certain of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as these women had said, but they, him they did not see. Then he said to them, O oh, foolish ones, slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and enter his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Then they drew near to the village where they were going, he indicated that he would have gone farther. But they constrained him, saying, Abide with us, for it's toward evening, and the day's far spent. And he went in to stay with them. The incognito Christ. <laughs> he, uh, he showed up at the L'Enfant Plaza underground stop in Washington, D.C. in a sweatshirt and a Washington Nationals baseball cap. <laughs> he leaned against a wall and got an old violin out of a case and put the case down on the ground and threw some change in it to seed it to see if anyone else would give him money. He was a busker, a street entertainer. But he was very different because the violin he was playing was not just any violin. It was a 1713 Stradivarius that sold for three and a half million dollars. And it had been stolen twice. It was so valuable. And the piece of music he was playing was one of the most difficult and beautiful pieces for the violin written by Bach in the 18th century. And he was there because it was an experiment. The Washington Post newspaper wanted to know what would it be like if they put one of the best violinists in the world, Josh Bell, in a sweatshirt close to the underground, 
playing a three and a half million dollar instrument, playing the best of music, would anybody even notice? <laughs> For the first three minutes, nobody even slowed down. After 63 people had gone by, one man broke stride, looked at him, and went on. It took six minutes for anyone to stop. A man finally stopped. Over the next 15 minutes, 1,070 people went by, and only seven people stopped. As they went by, they threw $32 in his, in his case. He, he usually gets $1,000 a minute. <laughs> The article won a Pulitzer Prize for journalism. And there was a telling line in the article in the Washington Post. It said, there was one real person there. The rest of them were all ghosts. <laughs> There's something about incognito stories that arrest our attention. Fame that is unrecognized. Talent that is unnoticed. It just grabs us. And that's one reason this story is such an interesting story because of all the stories of incognito appearances, this must be the greatest of them all because the risen Lord Jesus on Easter evening showed up incognito. Here are two disciples. They're not marquee players. We don't even know who Cleopas was. And the other one is not named they're on a road, it's dusk, dark, dirt road. They're with a knot of Passover pilgrims going back seven miles to a little village called Emmaus, and we don't even know where that is. They're talking to one another. It is subdued, probably finishing one another's sentences, I expect. That's how you do sometimes when you've run a subject into the ground. Well, we thought he was the one that... I know Cleo, but he wasn't the one. But I thought, and all of a sudden, uh, this uh, stranger joins them. <laughs> you ever had somebody come up beside you and you weren't expecting them? <laughs> and there he is striding along with them. And he interrupts their conversation and asks them, what are you talking about? It, it, they almost respond to him rudely. It's half a joke and it's half a rebuke. Are you the only person in town who doesn't know what we're talking about? Did you fall off of Mars? <laughs> we're talking about what everybody is talking about. Then Luke lets you in on the joke. You know what they don't know. This stranger is the risen Lord Jesus Christ. He's been crucified, buried, resurrected that morning, has already visited glory, and now is on a dirt road <laughs> talking to two second-string disciples. Uh, you know, that's a strange thing about Jesus. Sometimes he shows up in the most unexpected places. That's true not only then, it's true now. This man named Cleopas. We don't know who he is. Interesting name. It's the male form of Cleopatra. Might have been from Egypt, just as there's Joseph and Josephine, Cleopatra and Cleopas. That's all we know about him. The other one is not even named. The early church thought it was his wife, and maybe this was the first Christian family. That's just a guess. I think the other one is anonymous, so that you and I might see ourselves 
in that picture. <laughs> I was visiting an art museum in Florence. There they were, all the great Renaissance painters, side by side by side. When you came to the end of the exhibition, they pulled a trick. It was a ploy. There was an empty frame, and you could go get behind it and put your face in the frame, and you were in the picture. I wonder sometimes if these anonymous characters in Bible stories aren't there so that your face could be in that picture. Cleopas and you on that road when Jesus suddenly <laughs> appears. I, 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 I'm not really all that encouraged by the marquee players in the New Testament. I've read it all my preaching ministry, Peter, James, John. Too big, too big. Those are the people who were stone statues in cathedrals. I have a hard time identifying with them. But I can identify with somebody named Cleo walking down the road and an anonymous disciple. I can feel a sense of kinship with them. They're downsized, so they're right-sized for me. Have you ever been talking about somebody and they walked up behind you? <laughs> I've had that happen. Somebody in front of me sees them behind me and they go. <laughs> it was a scene just like that. This stranger came up. If you, if you walk up on somebody, you need to say something. <laughs> so he said, what are you talking about? I'm going to ask you this question. <laughs> Have you ever recognized that you cannot talk about Jesus behind his back? <laughs> <laughs> oh, we do sometimes. We grumble, we mumble, we murmur. And really we're talking about his providence. Uh, how different we'd talk if we recognized he can walk up on any conversation. He shows up where he was least expected. Two gloomy, disappointed disciples walking that evening. The atmosphere of their conversation was the same kind of atmosphere that you'd feel if you'd visited a friend in hospital for the last time and walking home in the dust, you knew you'd never see him again. That's the mood of the conversation. I'll ask you something. This is where I wish I weren't talking to thousands of you. I wish I could talk to you over a cup of tea. Do you ever feel like somebody is there? particularly if you're an unbeliever. Oh, I don't mean out in the throng in the streets of this vast metropolis, but when you're all alone in your little place, do you ever feel like somebody is there? I expect you may, and that somebody may be that one somebody named Jesus. It's surprising where he shows up. I'm reading A.N. Wilson's biography of Queen Victoria, and 1842, she, as a younger queen, and the prince consort Philip were at Claremont. They were taking a walk on the heath when there was a violent storm, <laughs> and they ran into a little shack to get out of the storm. The queen, the empress, <laughs> and an old gardener was in the garden, and he begged them to come into his cottage. Queen and the prince came in. He begged them into the kitchen. It was a small, humble place. He apologized for it being dirty, although Victoria in her diary said it was very clean. And he told them all about his life for 50 years. Queen Victoria and Prince Albert 
got up, thanked him, and left. And he never knew who'd been to the cottage. I think sometimes Jesus shows up that way. There's a somebody, and you don't know who's been there. <laughs> Maybe you don't know because sometimes your eyes are held and you don't know who's there beside you. There's a strange statement here. It says in verse 16, their eyes were restrained on that nighttime walk, gloomy on the road to Emmaus. Now, some people think that's just because they were preoccupied. Preoccupations are reality. Sometimes we miss things because we're preoccupied. Albert Einstein taught at Princeton University in New Jersey, in the United States. He was so preoccupied that he could never find his own house going home. World genius, they had to paint the door red so he'd find his own house. Preoccupied. It's interesting, these folks were preoccupied with religion. Isn't it a strange thing you can be so preoccupied with religion that you might miss Jesus? They were talking about the Messiah. Religion. There's a difference in talking about him and knowing him. It's the difference between talking about electrical theory and sticking your finger into a light socket. They were talking, but, 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 but others say, no, no. He, they weren't preoccupied. God restrained their eyes. It's a passive tense of divine action. Their eyes were held by God himself. It's a mystery. That morning when he came out of the tomb and appeared to Mary Magdalene, she thought he was the gardener. Can you imagine, son of God, gardener? Gardener indeed. He planted every tree that ever grew, every giant redwood, <laughs> millions of grains in the soil, the meanest flower that grows. Yes, he's the gardener, but she didn't recognize Jesus. John 21, there were seven disciples who went absent without leave. They're going to go back to fishing, and a stranger is on the seashore, the risen Jesus. And they don't recognize him until he calls together a congregation of fish and fills the boat. It's one of the mysteries. It's a mystery this Easter of 25th, in this throng of people here, and those of you listening beyond here, for some of you, Jesus Christ is more real than any other, even though you cannot see him. And yet right down the pew from you is somebody who doesn't see it at all. Probably more concerned about the Sunday roast than what this Texan is saying. It's a mystery. It's more of a mystery outside these walls. In this huge metropolis, people whose eyes are held. I don't have an answer for that mystery. The New Testament doesn't It just presents it as a, as a, as a mystery here. I, I'm on an academic sabbatical up at Oxford. I, I was thinking while writing this message about Alistair McGrath has three doctorates in, 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 in biological uh, sciences, in theology, in literature. And yet he sees Jesus everywhere. Sees him in biophysics, sees him in literature, sees him in theology. And yet his colleague, his colleague Richard Dawkins, his former colleague at New College, doesn't see him anywhere. Why is it that people's eyes are <laughs> held? It's 
It's a mystery, but I want to tell you it's a, it's, it's a mystery worth praying about because Jesus told an old cynical careerist religionist Nicodemus, unless you're born from above, you cannot see the reign of God. And Paul in Ephesians 1 says, I pray that the eyes of your heart might be flooded with light so that you can see the hope of his calling, his inheritance in the saints, and his mega power. You see, there are those who see no hope because they don't see him. They don't see anything to inherit in a life beyond, and they certainly don't see his mega power because you see that only with the eyes of the heart. And if you're here this morning and say, I don't know what these people are so exciting about. I don't know what they're singing about. I don't know what you're up there gesturing about. You might at least pray, God, enlighten the eyes of my heart. Because he's the only one who can do it. But, 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 but when he does that, Jesus gives you the opportunity to open up to him. <laughs> Here's the great physician. Here's the master psychologist, <laughs> Jesus. He says, what? What kind of things are you talking about? They were depressed, despondent. Their dreams were shattered. Their hopes were crushed. And in verse 19, he says, what sort of things? So look at what the word means. And it is as if he had lanced a boil. Just a cataract of words come out of them. Did you hear them? There were people, they wanted to say something. They were so hurt. They said, well, 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 well we're talking about Jesus of Nazareth. This really is humorous. That's him right there. <laughs> As if he didn't know where he was from. <laughs> he was a prophet, mighty in word and deed, and we thought that he had been the one. <laughs> he let them open up to him. You know, this is a remarkable thing when you considered who it was and where it was and what he was doing. It'd be about like Chopin letting a five-year-old tell him how to play the piano. <laughs> It'd be like Michelangelo letting someone who knows how to paint by numbers tell him how to paint. If anything else, Jesus himself should have been bitter. He had been denied, betrayed, whipped, misjudged, stripped naked, humiliated, crucified, You'd think he'd be walking down the road saying, you don't know what they did to me. <laughs> but instead, in a condescension and humility beyond humility, he says, what sort of things? And he lets them tell him about him. This is the cosmic Christ. Do you understand cosmic Christ, the Christ of the universe? I was preaching a while back and Raleigh, North Carolina, and they sent me to dinner with a Duke University astronomer. I was intimidated. I've never eaten dinner with an astronomer. What do you talk to an astronomer about? Twinkle, twinkle, little star? I didn't know what. Yeah. So I said, how big do you people at Duke think the universe is? And he shot right back 14 billion light years. If you harnessed a beam of light and rode it at 186,000 miles a second, it'd take 14 billion years to get across the thing. I'm just trying to swallow my hamburger thinking about that. Here is the cosmic Christ. And he says, tell me, open up to me. A humility 
beyond humility. We have a little chorus we sing where I'm from. There's no friend like the lowly Jesus. No, not one. No, not one. You see, I'm so glad that he stopped by and asked these anonymous, non-marquee disciples, how are you feeling? Sometimes we think that Jesus' only interest is with the theologians or the academicians or he's over at the cathedral or the palace or the university. No, 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 that's not, no, no. The promise of the gospel is that wherever you are, he is. Whether it's in your flat or in a windowless workroom behind something, he's there. And he's saying, what sort of things to give you an opening to talk to him? Well, well, <laughs> you can tell him what discourages you. They're walking along, and when they open their heart, you can hear the pathos of it. You hear it when they said, we ourselves thought that he himself was the one who would pay the price to redeem Israel. There's heartache in that. It's like Phillips Brooks, Christmas Carol, O little town of Bethlehem, the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. They, they, they give him their heartbreak. We thought he had been the one. You know, there's somebody here today who feels exactly that way this Easter. You thought that somebody was the one. Maybe you thought, I've met Mr. Wright, but he turned out to be Mr. Half Wright. <laughs> uh, you thought, I've met my dream boat, but she turned out to be the Titanic. <laughs> Isn't that lying? We're just like them on our road. We thought that was the one. How many times? Well, if I could just get that credential, if I could get just admitted to that, if I could get that promotion, if I could move here, eat. And all of life is saying what these two said. Uh, I, 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 I thought that was it. And that wasn't it. Close to me. It's where I wish I could sit down with you just eye to eye. God has so designed life that it will always be disappointing short of the Lord Jesus Christ. It will have the odor of decay. It will have the trifling trivia. It will always be reaching out for what you cannot grasp short of Jesus. And every time you say, I thought this was it, if it's short of him, it will turn to ashes in your mouth. C.S. Lewis put it this way, beware the false absolute. And what C.S. Lewis meant by beware of the false absolute is that giving to anything else what belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ because it's always a false absolute. It, it, if you haven't made this discovery about life, it's always one half step from changing. If I were to go to that keyboard right there and play a C, an E, and a G, that's a bright, vibrant, sunny C major chord. If I take that E and move it one half step 
and make it an E minor. It becomes a sad, dolorous chord full of lament and darkness. Just one half step. You need to understand that life is like that. One of the silly, I don't know if you sing it over here in the UK. It's a little, quote, Christian chorus that is sung in the States. It's called, Every Day with Jesus is Sweeter Than the Day Before. That's one of the dumbest things ever written. <laughs> Sorry. You asked Paul when he was stoned and left for dead at Lystra, is this sweeter than the day before? <laughs> Ask him when they stripped his back and whipped him in Philippi, was this sweeter than the day before? Paul would say, no, I've had sweeter days than this. <laughs> That's to misunderstand the nature of the Christian experience. The Christian experience is that you have a Lord who on life's road you can turn to and unburden yourself and say, this was what I was hoping. I like Hebrews 4.15. It puts it this way. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. We have a friend and there's no friend like the lowly Jesus. I hope you're anchored to that. <laughs> you know, in, in mountaineering, one of the principles in mountaineering almost always is that mountain climbers are tethered to one another, roped to one another, so that one of them who has driven a spike into the rock or a screw into the ice, wedged or put a cam there, is anchored so that if anyone falls off, the one who's anchored holds the rope. Most of us know the story of heard it of Edmund Hillary who conquered Mount Everest in 1953, but most people have forgotten the story of Peter Schoenig who that same year was leading a team up K2 when one of them became ill and they tried to belay him down the mountain and in an awkward moment, five of the climbers fell off the side of K2 and dangled in thin air. The only reason they didn't fall was because Peter Schoenig was anchored with an ice axe, a pickaxe, and he held the rope. When I read that story, it becomes a metaphor for me. I need somebody above who holds the rope so that when I'm swinging in thin air like Cleopas and this other one, I can pour my heart out to the one who holds the rope. Now, if you do that, he'll, <laughs> he'll tell you who he really is. After a while, this stranger interrupts them. He was a very patient stranger. They told him who he was. <laughs> but uh, he, 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 he interrupts them. And it's rather, verse 25 is rather shocking. It doesn't sound like Jesus. Oh, foolish ones and slow of heart. Basically, the word means mindless and stupid. If you're walking with somebody, that's an unusual thing to say. He arrests them because he's about to tell them who he is. You know, uh, there's a lot of invented Jesuses. I've been looking lately at that great theological book, 
Facebook. <laughs> I have about 5,000 friends, and it's interesting, R.T., how, how many friends I have who know a different Jesus. There are those who uh, are uh, the liberal theological friends. They, they know a Jesus who endorses everything on the liberal social agenda. But on the other hand, I've got the conservative Jesus friends, the status quo Jesus, and I've got the prosperity friends. I, there's a lot of invented Jesuses. And in this passage, he tells them who he is. You see, one of their problems was they'd invented a Jesus. Their Jesus was going to be a political Messiah who would deliver Israel from occupation by the Roman Empire. I could understand that. It was a crown without a cross, power without pain, a Messiah without suffering. Who wouldn't want that? It was someone who had a throne room, but he'd never been through the thorn room. Who wouldn't want that? I'd like that. But that wasn't who he was. And if you'll stay with me just a moment, he gave them a key to understand their own Bible. Up to that moment, no reader of the Old Testament that we have on record, no rabbi, no reader had ever connected the Messiah with suffering. You ever been to a 3D movie? Remember they give you the what? These glasses? And all of a sudden, everything looks different. Jesus gave them a new set of lenses to look at the Old Testament. And for the first time ever, they understood what he said when he said, Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and enter into his glory? That was news. Have you ever seen that optical illusion that are two chalices side by side, but if you look at them long enough, there are two faces there? He gave them a lens to look at the Old Testament, and they saw for the first time what Isaiah 53, 5 says when it says, He was wounded for our transgressions. But I have something worse than transgression. Transgression means stepping over the mark. I also have iniquities. That's worse. That means something twisted in me. He was bruised for my iniquities. The chastisement of my peace was on him. By his stripes, I'm healed. And as he walked along, he opened that up to them. And for the first time, they saw it. He gave them a lens to read the word of God. They saw it just like Dr. Richard Seltzer saw it. He, Richard Seltzer is a surgeon, an MD, and a great writer. He writes about what he's discovered as a surgeon. He's operated on a young married woman. As he put it, he, with religious fervor, followed the contour of her cheek to remove a cancer, hoping not to cut a nerve, but he couldn't remove it without cutting a twig of a nerve that left her for the rest of her life with a palsied mouth, a distorted mouth. 
couldn't help him. He's in the hospital room with her and her husband, young man. It's twilight. He's trying to stay out of the way as they talk. The young woman looks at Dr. Seltzer and says, will I always be like this? He tells her the dreaded truth. Yes, yes, you'll always be like this. He sinks back against the wall and watches her husband as he smiles at her, bends down over her and says, I think it's kind of cute. And then Seltzer said, he bent over her and distorted his own lips before he kissed her so that it would fit her distorted smile. And he said, that was a God moment. That's what these two discovered. That the way God saves is something they could never imagine. Not some military might on a horse, but a suffering servant savior who becomes the wounded healer who bends down over distorted people and took into himself all of our distortion that he might make you whole. And only Jesus can give you the lens to see that. <laughs> well, he, 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 he gave them a lecture in the Old Testament walking along there. It says their heart began to burn in them. They were saying, ooh, we never heard a preacher like this. Their heart burned. Ah, oh, there's a technical word here in the language of the New Testament. It says he gave them a thorough hermeneutic. That is a thorough interpretation beginning with Moses and all of the prophets. Wouldn't you like to have been on that road and heard Jesus talking about Jesus from the Old Testament? I'm sure he put his hands on Genesis 3.15 right outside the gates of Eden when God said to the snake, all right, snake, you won round one. <laughs> you've bruised. You've, you, 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 you've bruised her heel. But the day's coming when what's going to come from her will crush your head. You know what? I think he stopped by Numbers 21. Do you know that Numbers is the dullest book in the Bible? I'd like to hear your testimony if you ever read every word in Numbers. Numbers is dull because it's full of, yeah, numbers. <laughs> <laughs> but right over there in chapter 21, I think Jesus walking and talking stopped by Numbers. <laughs> Strange story. Hebrews out in the desert. God's been feeding them by angel food cake falling out of heaven. Manna. They're tired of it. They told Moses, we've had boiled manna, fried manna, fricasseed manna. We've, we're tired of manna. God got tired of their murmuring. Set a snake, carpet vipers, biting them. People die. Moses, we're sorry. That's why they call them the children of Israel. They turned on a dime. We're sorry. Moses, make it go away. Moses goes to God. God, 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 the snakes are biting these people. Strangest little story. God says, go get a jeweler. Tell that jeweler to make a bronze snake. Put it on a pole, and everybody who looks at it will be healed. Strange story. 
And yet you find that snake in the strangest place, right next door to John 3.16. For God so loved the world, he gave his... You're right, well, you know what? You, you know what's right before that? That snake. Even as Moses lifted up a serpent in the wilderness. You see, that bronze snake didn't have any poison in it. It was innocent. But if they looked at it, it made them whole. They didn't have to walk. They didn't have to run. They didn't even have to have the strength to sit up if they just look. And Jesus opened the eyes of Cleopas and that man that Easter evening and all over the Old Testament in manna and scapegoat and sacrifices and snakes and wounded healers, they saw Jesus. You know what that means, church? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by what? The Word of God. There was Jesus with them, but they found out about him the same way you're finding out this morning. And that is by the word of God. <laughs> well, <laughs> when Jesus makes your heart burn, it's a good time to ask him to stay. They come to Emmaus, this tiny village, don't know where it is. Now, did you note this? He indicated that he would have gone farther. Yeah. Walking and talking, they're there. He was going on down the road, and they constrained him to remain with them. Yes, yes, yes. He joined them. He told them. He'd listened to them, let them open up to him, heard their disappointments. He'd told them about himself, but it was then their move. Listen. Jesus will not coerce you. No. He will not drive you and he will not drag you. All he will do is draw you. Just like out here in the beautiful parks of this city, the daffodils and the crocus, nobody drove them out of the ground or dragged them out of the ground. They were gently drawn out of the ground. Just like the trees turning green in the parks where the sap has been in their roots in the winter and the sun is drawing it up, it didn't drag it, it didn't drive it, it just drew it. To change the metaphor like the tides that are high and low over 12 and a half hours, the gravitational pull of the moon draws them. Nobody can drive or drag them, and so you. Jesus Christ is the resurrected Son of God. If he came straight at you, it would crush you. No, no. This is not some minor league deity. This is the risen, ascended Christ. <laughs> he draws you. And that means the next move is yours. <laughs> you say, well... I don't need him. You won't thwart him. If Cleopas and the other one had said, go on down the road, he would have gone on down the road. But at Pentecost, there were 3,000 people who did want him. And if they'd said no, there were villages full of Samaritans who wanted him. And if they had said no, 
There was a Cornelius and an Ethiopian and a Lydia and a Lois and a Eunice and a Timothy and a Philippian jailer. They wanted him. Never think because you reject Christ and let him go on down the road that somehow you've scuttled his plans. Never. The old world didn't want him. He can go to the new world. <laughs> and if the northern hemisphere doesn't want him, <laughs> he can go to the global south. <laughs> if the UK and the US doesn't want him, he can go by Ghana, Nigeria, and Kenya, and Sierra Leone. Do you know 110 years ago, there were 10 million Christians in Africa. Today, more than 400 million. If you let him walk on by, he always has somewhere else to go. And that has to do with you and your home. Right here today, somebody sitting in this congregation may say, ah, you know, I don't know what you're so excited about. Let's get out of here. It's afternoon. <laughs> You tell him, I don't want you in your house. You won't thwart him. He'll go down the block. He'll go down to the next street, and there a husband and a wife will be saved, and a marriage will be saved, and a family will be different. You won't thwart him. That's why we used to sing where I'm from, the old song of invitation, Pass me not. We all know it. <laughs> Gentle Savior. Here my humble cry while on others thou art waiting do not pass me by that same Christ is on the road with you this Easter April 5th 2015 and for one somebody you hear, it's your move. He won't drive you. He won't drag you. It's your move. I want to ask you all over this house, as if each of you sitting in a private prayer chapel, would you bow with me right now? And I'd ask you for this moment not to be interceding for anybody else for just this moment. Just you. You in a private prayer chapel. Right where you are. Faith comes by hearing. And hearing. By the word of God. When Jesus was right there with them. He told them about him from the word of God. So they were at no advantage and you're at no disadvantage. You've heard about him from the word of God. As you're bowed there, let me think with you just a minute and we'll go. I'm done. I'm going to sit down. Let me just think with you. I have a very blunt friend who from time to time says, Joel, how's it working for you? <laughs> I don't know you that well, but if I knew you well enough and ask you that, how's it working for you? If you live a life without Christ, and by that I mean you are not following him right now. The most characteristic thing Jesus said was not some big theological word. All he did was walk up to people and say two words, follow me. That's a test anybody can take. If you're not his now, 
How's he working for it? Isn't there one somebody here this Easter who'd want to say, Jesus, Jesus, don't walk on. Stay. Stay. You know, he stayed, and when he broke bread, they, they, they knew who he was, and he vanished. Maybe they saw the nail prints in his hands. Stay. Later on, Paul would say the words near you. It's even in your mouth. It's in your mouth. It's on the tip of your tongue. If you will confess Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you'll be rescued. One of the great promises of the Word of God. I wonder if in this balcony around or these transepts on either side or in the overflow, wherever you are. We're not going to stand up. We're not going to walk down an aisle. Nobody's going to come to you particularly. But I wonder if with everyone in prayer, if there's not one somebody who just say to me, Joel, Joel, today, I want him to abide with me. I want him to rescue me. I want him to make me whole. All I'm going to ask you to do, and this will be all, is just at an act of your will, wherever you are, just slip your hand up. I want that today. Today. This day. In the balcony around, on this lower floor, in the overflow. Lord, we pray for every individual here who needs to know a risen Savior this Easter Sunday. We pause now because the next move is ours. And we pray that you would abide with us and we would walk with you all the way until we're in that place where there's no more night and no more pain and never tears and never crying again, where the Lamb is the light. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.